welcome back to Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I'm your host, John Allen, also known as Spooky Uncle John. With me, as always, is my co-host and producer... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. And our techno-mage, Ren. Hello! Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. Well, they can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, and TikTok at the Area51H, as well as searching for us on Facebook by looking for Area 51 and a Half, and of course, on our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash the area 51h <laughs> nick 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 we have to tell her aliens what you and i did the other night oh <laughs> like it, last night in fact yeah oh, we yeah. tortured ourselves that's, aliens we did we that's did. how bad it is you and wish it was more than one night ago we tortured ourselves and not in a fun way we watched jeepers creepers reborn oh my god oh boy um what so a piece of crap just to clarify i love the originals the original jeepers creepers film and i know you do too as well. yeah That's it's, one of your it's, it's a fantastic film um i like the second one it's a good follow-up the third one happened it did and now there's this fourth one which is oh my god but what i will say about the third one is at least they tied it into the other two yeah 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 um Okay, <laughs> just to go over it quickly, because I don't want to spend too much time on this piece of crap, but it was bad. It, it, the, the, they shot scenes during the day and used <laughs> computer imagery to make it into night, and it made it look like something from a video game from the mid-90s. Like, back in the mid-90s, they had video games where they would have actors against a green screen. This is what it looked like. Yeah. It was so bad, and the the, the creeper looked terrible and i didn't care about any of the characters no i didn't care about any of the characters but i will defend the actors that they did the best they could with the script that they had that is i'll, I'll give them that they did they weren't terrible but it's just it was a bad 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 and, script and, and you know what the makeup wasn't terrible but it wasn't the creeper no the the design of the creeper was not good no, the design of none of it was good. Now, we did say that it looked like there was maybe the filmmakers had been influenced a little bit by Rob Zombie films when they're at that, yeah. that festival. And we made the comment that we would have rather have seen Rob Zombie take a, take a hold of this and, and give it a try. Because I, I really, uh, you know, I, I, I can't waste another breath talking about this, this ill-conceived, don't waste your time. Don't. Just don't. Half a star out of ten. Done. But, but I will say, I will say though, on my Friday Night Fright Flick, I did get to have oh, the holy grail of opportunities for me. In 1981, I think, somewhere around there, a Canadian film by David Cronenberg came out. Horror film. Scanners. Yes! I was way too young to see it, of course. Never saw it. Like most Canadian films, came, went, became the the... The ether of lore, if you will. Somewhere up in the northern lights, oh, went scanners with My Bloody Valentine. And they, they hung there for years until you could find them. I have been trying to track down scanners. Couldn't find it anywhere. God bless you, Crave. Crave streamed scanners, and I was able to watch it for the first time. Now, I have to say, for 1981, Canadian movie, not bad. Mm-hmm. Does it hold up? It could use a remake. Okay. It could use a remake. It starred the other Jack Nicholson, uh, uh, Mike, yeah. Michael Ironside. Yep. When I say star, he's in it. Yeah. He's the bad guy. 
we don't see him all that much. But nobody else in it is of note except for one Canadian actor who is in the most iconic scene. And this Canadian actor was huge. I can't think of his name right now, so I'm not even going to bother looking it up. But he was all over Canadian television mm -hmm. back in the day. And and he's, he's the guy that gets his head exploded. And when that happened, I went, well, that came earlier in the film than I expected. So I remember seeing Scanners uh, when I was way too young to see it because it was on one of the specialty channels uh, on cable. And they also had a making of thing and they showed how they made that scene. And I thought that was one of the most fascinating things ever. But yeah, I, I love Scanners. It's one of my, it's one of the horror films that I really cut my teeth on when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And yeah, David Cronenberg. Yeah. like Dude's he, got an eye. He, <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> the people sitting in the audience got a, that eye on them when he had a <laughs> Oh, yeah. but that yeah, that is the most iconic scene. That and the end of it, where you and because it's on the poster where you see Michael Ironside and the veins are all through his head. And oh, it's, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's not for the faint of heart, but um, it it does sort of unfold like a crime drama. Yes, yeah, and, you remember that, and uh, just has some really good acting in it. And uh, if you get a chance, check it out. Now, I do want to bring up something before we move on any further. This Thursday, this past Thursday, Ren did another Twitch stream for the official. Area 51 and a half Twitch channel. So that's twitch.tv forward slash the area 51 H and they streamed the quarry. Now the quarry is a horror game. Uh, it's, it's done by the same people that did that, did that game until dawn. So it's kind of like an interactive movie to an extent and man, the cast in that film, they got David Arquette, Lynn Shays in it, uh, justice Smith, Brenda song, Ariel winter, and they're all providing their likeness. Ted Raimi's in it as well, which is just great. But look, uh, so far, I haven't had a chance to play it. Ren's been the one that's been playing it, and it looks absolutely fantastic. Definitely, we want to thank everybody that came in to, to check it out. Uh, we had a really good turnout that night as well. So thank you to you guys, and thanks again to Ren for doing the stream. Nick, I always hate when we have to do this. Sad news from Hollywood. Lisa Loring, the original Wednesday Adams from the 1960s, The Adams Family has passed away. Now, Nick, I had the opportunity to meet Lisa Loring when I was actually doing my production of The Addams Family, where I was playing Gomez Adams. I have to tell you, she was one of the sweetest people I have ever met. She was so wonderful. Uh, she was, like, you know how when you meet celebrities at Comic-Cons, they're mm -hmm. friendly, they're welcoming, they're appreciative of you because you're their fans. It was more than that with her. She had such gratitude for her fans taking the time to come and meet her. And what was wonderful about it is because we, we got to talk about the Adams family and she talked about her relationship with uh, her co-stars. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the memories that she shared with me, of course, was Ted Casty, who played Lurch, was so tall. And she just remembers him being this giant of a man. But, you know, just... He would play with her and he would swing her from her his arms and, you know, just have this wonderful, wonderful time, uh, especially when they were doing like the Wednesday dance, which we got to see Jenna Ortega. Pay, yeah, yeah. Pay was, tribute really to cool, yeah. in, in uh, Tim Burton's Wednesday on Netflix. But she just had nothing but good things to say about her experience there. And what I loved about it was the fact that you know, we were talking about me playing Gomez Adams and she got up out of her seat and she came around and she gave me a big hug and she says, welcome to the family, dad. And then oh. she signs, she signs 
my my uh, autograph to John, also known as Gomez. And I was like, oh my God, I have the seal of approval from Lisa Loring to be Gomez hat. That is so cool. Yeah, and it was just a, a wonderful, rich experience. I, I know she was good friends with our, our pal, Butch Patrick. Um, you know, they did this mock wedding ceremony where uh, Wednesday married Eddie Munster at, at a, a nightclub somewhere. And, you know... That's awesome. She's Anybody that has spoken of her since her passing just talks about what a warm and open and sweet woman she she was and it really made me cry because of my connection yeah to to all of that because adam's family has been one of my favorite properties ever from the the charles adams cartoons to the 60s tv show to the 90s movies and now even uh wednesday i i thought it was great i i do have a few issues with it because that's modern storytelling for yeah. you but um but overall i lisa loring just tugs at the heart and then on top of that we lose the other half of laverne and shirley cindy williams playing shirley feeney i i, I don't even know what to say other than why <laughs> why god why why universe why take these two so close together laverne and shirley was really when you think about it, a groundbreaking sitcom because it's was two female leads. You know, I don't know of any sitcom prior to that, that had two female leads. None come to the top of my head. Yeah. And you know, it, they captured that whole thing that everybody, everybody praises Lucille Ball for. Yeah. It was very much that kind of dynamic that Lucille Ball and Vivian Vance had in I Love Lucy, where they were brought to the front. Yeah, where it was all this slapstick. And the funny thing about it is Laverne and Shirley was a spin-off of Happy Days. Yeah, yeah, you were talking about that. Their characters were introduced in an episode of Happy Days. And the funny thing is, is you see the the change in the character. Like Laverne DeFazio stayed Laverne DeFazio. She was like Laverne DeFazio in that episode of Happy Days. She was the same in Laverne and Shirley. But Shirley Feeney's character changed. She became sweeter. She became less um less she she had a, a a Milwaukee kind of accent that wasn't um that was kind of a, a harder accent, you know, a less educated kind of woman sort of thing, right? So th- that character changed and we had that sort of sweeter side with all these iconic characters from Lenny and Squiggy to Carmine and uh you know Frank DeFazio Laverne's father at the Pizza Bowl. And the funny thing about it is because this was a spinoff, it actually became more popular than its parent property, Happy Days. Really? Yeah. Because, I mean, it it had this real connect because there was a lot of of good female-led shows in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. You had Mary Tyler Moore uh, and, and of course, Laverne and Shirley. So I think it was relatable because it's these two single women living together, trying to find the loves of their lives, working at a blue-collar job as bottle cappers at the Mill Rock at Schott's Brewery in Milwaukee. And their theme song was iconic. And uh, I think Ren's going to play a little bit of that for us. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Schlemiel, Schlemazel, Incorporated. Chance we'll take it. Real city rule will break it. We're gonna make our dreams come true. 
right from the start, this thing was destined to be iconic. And, you know, if you can find it somewhere on streaming, younger aliens. I mean, I was there when it was playing. I watched it every, it was, I think it was Tuesday night it came on. So I watched that every Tuesday night. Loved it. It's one of my all-time favorite sitcoms. If you get a chance, check it out because the the dynamics between uh, Penny Marshall and and Cindy Williams is just magic. Uh, it's one of the things I find kind of fascinating about it is that um, I'm not very familiar with Laverne and Shirley. Well, no, I mean that was long gone before you even well, emigrated here. And that that's the thing though. Like I remember watching Happy Days when I was a kid in Scotland. I remember Happy Days being for at least a little while when I moved back here, I uh, moved back, I uh, moved to Canada in syndication, but I don't remember seeing Laverne and Shirley um, in syndication. So I, I think it's kind of lost on a certain aspect of my generation at the very least. But yeah, like I, I find it interesting how some sitcoms are iconic. And then I know it's back in syndication right now and they just kind of go away for a little while and then they come back. And they find a new audience. Yeah, and they come back and it's like a warm hug. So yeah. definitely, folks, check out uh, the original Adams Family and check out Laverne and Shirley if you can find them somewhere. Speaking of streaming, Nick, what is going on with Netflix? Oh, Netflix has created a crap storm of a PR nightmare. They are pooping the bed. They are. So let, let's talk a little bit about this. I don't I don't want to get too far into it because there's, there's a lot more places you can get more detail on it online. But basically the way it's working is they have they have put, explained how they're going to cap people sharing passwords. And of course, the outcry and the backlash online has been pretty much what I expected. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as what Netflix expected, I'm not sure, but I don't know how they could not have expected this. Okay, so just tell us briefly, what do they mean by sharing? So sharing passwords, right? So you're not, as far as they're concerned, each household should have their own Netflix account. You should not be sharing with anyone else outside your household. Okay, so basically in my house, I have my Netflix. There's my profile, there's mom's profile, there's a guest profile. That's still fine. Yeah. But there are families out there. For example, there are families whose kid has gone off to college and can't really afford to get Netflix, so he shares the family password. There are, uh, and this is, I think this is the real mistake here, is that they've ticked off uh, families in the military because there are there are uh, moms and dads that get dispatched in the military and they use the family Netflix account and now they're being told that they can't do that anymore. All right, so now this isn't happening quite yet right they they they've announced how they're going to do it now there might be a role with the and there was a leak or something from south america so the okay so from south america there are certain countries that are going to have a different provision to it to how they stop the password sharing but in the rest of the world they're going to have another method and it just sound like both methods just sound like a giant pain in the tuchus because it, netflix quite frankly is the most expensive streaming network I think, at least here in Canada. So here, here's the thing. Yes and no. Like Crave can be more expensive if you get more packages. The sports streaming services are definitely more expensive. But here's the thing, though, and I think I, I can't remember who said it, but I saw a comment on TikTok that summed it up the best. Netflix, you are a discretionary line on my budget. Yeah. You are a want, not a need. And the minute you make it compl complicated, you're gone. 
And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be asked to do one of these different complicated things who aren't going to bother and just cancel their service. And I think that goes for all the streaming. It's discretionary. It's, you know, this is by, you know, people sit there and go, well, you know, John, you should get rid of all of your hard copies of all of your movies and all of your TV shows because you can just stream it. Okay, but I bought that thing. I bought it once. I can watch it forever. Yeah. As long as technology doesn't screw me over. There, there was an episode of Last Drive in with Joe Bob where he mentioned that why he doesn't get rid of his hard copies because the digital copies that are available on streaming come down to different contract issues, different rights issues, and frankly is at the discretion of the streaming service. You don't have that forever, but if you have the hard copy... No one can take it away from you unless they steal it, of course. But mm. that's basically it. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of my hard copy DVDs for the same reason. Right. Okay, well, moving on from streaming, let us talk about DC. Announcements have come out in the DCU. Tell us about that, Nick. So James Gunn basically put out a video. I think it had to come out because there was a lot of backlash over the stuff that him and DC were doing, Warner Brothers were doing, mm-hmm. and they had to explain something. And I think so, a lot of that backlash is, of course, the fact that they got rid of all these wonderful actors that we know and love in these roles. Yeah. So here, we're getting a new Superman movie. We're getting a new Batman movie. Now, the Batman movie really interests me because it's going to be Batman and the Robin will be Damian Wayne. But that's... That's kind of cool. That is cool. But that's a, that's a different topic for another time. The idea is... The thing that, that makes me happy with what James Gunn has said is the fact that they're planning all of this out 10 years in advance. Because I feel like with the Snyderverse and even with... And even it's even been admitted with the Star Wars movies, they didn't plan this stuff ahead. They, and they it just... Shows. Yeah. They just went along. So I think James Gunn has taken what he's learned from the MCU, from Kevin Feige, and is going to apply this in a way that makes sense for DC. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's exciting for me. Okay, I'm going to be real honest. It's not as exciting for me because, first of all, you're not 40 yet. I'm over 50. 10 years puts me over 60. I don't have that kind of time, man. <laughs> Like, I and everything that came after, well, not quite everything, not 100% everything, but most of the stuff that came after Endgame, quite frankly, Phase Boar was not really great. And it's like, when do you know enough to stop? I, I get that they're going to tie in video games and comic books and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, that's kind of brilliant. But I don't, can we just get back to standalone superhero movies? Is, is that too much to ask? I think, honestly, at this point, I kind of think it is. Because if you look at standalone superhero films that are being made, like if... I It pains me to call it a superhero film. Heck, it pains me to call it a film. But if you look at Morbius, which <laughs> really was st- a standalone superhero film, they're not... They're not putting the effort into them. Well, that's that's Sony still trying to play in the 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 arena yeah. with whatever uh, team members they have left. Yeah, it's like I don't know, throw in uh, throw in that kid with the the glasses that can't skate, and maybe he'll get a goal. I don't know. <laughs> basically, basically, like Sony's just taking villains from Spider Man and turning them into heroes. It's weird. Yeah, but they they set these things up, and then they they don't. F- 
follow through with it or they can't follow through with it. And so- that ties back to the Snyderverse. That ties back to a lot of these other movies is that they don't have the follow through for them. And that creates the problem. Yeah, I mean, I know I have to do like the whole wait and see. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll, I'll love the new Superman. Maybe I won't. I just know that I loved Henry Cavill. I loved Gal Gadot. I don't think that I, I, I love Ben Affleck, too. And I just don't think that they got they didn't get the best of the best. Well, and that's another thing. James Gunn has come forward saying the producers at Warner Brothers prior to his tenure now really screwed Henry Cavill around. Yeah. And that that's kind of it. But as far as it goes, for me, I'm excited. I'm excited of the, of the involvement of James Gunn now that he's explained uh, what he's doing. And you know what? I'm not. He sounded angry. He sounded defensive. And I get why. But the thing of it is, you made that decision on your own to get rid of these actors that everybody still wants to see. And really, that's where I'm hinging my star. I And the fact that I'm getting too old to go on a 10-year journey. Fair enough. I'm looking forward to it. We'll see what happens. I'm doing the wait and see, and we'll see what happens from there. Okay. And now it's time for our main topic. Aliens, it is Black History Month, so today Nick and I are talking about our favorite actors and significant moments within black cinema and pop culture. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. There are a lot of actors out there that have really influenced the overarching direction of pop culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my favorite ones, personally, is Wesley Snipes. Now, we've had this discussion before. I'm not really a big action guy. I don't like a lot of action films, but there are some out there. And Wesley Snipes is one of the action stars that I really like. One of my favorite action films is Demolition Man, where he actually plays the villain, the very, very, uh, just really out there Simon Phoenix. Mm -hmm. But moving on in his career, he was Blade. Yeah. Now, Blade came at a time when the the superhero movie had kind of petered off into campy ridiculousness, not just with the Batman films, but when you look at things like Blank Man or Meteor Man or um, Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. Well, even um, the final Christopher Reeve Superman movie, I mean, I, I know what they were trying to do with it. They were trying to do something very culturally relevant and significant and, and tell this amazing story, but it was just... Bad. It fell flat. It was so bad. So Blade was, it wasn't Marvel's first foray into film. That was Howard the Duck. And that was <laughs> terrible. But it was their first um feature film that included one of their uh one of their comic book characters. And it was good. It was really it, good. It was exceptional. It it took a genre that again had petered off and made it edgy, made it hard, and made it cool. And what honestly, I don't think anyone could have played Blade at that time other than Wesley Snipes because he he had a cert Wesley Snipes has this edge to him. And you see it in movies like Demolition Man. You see it in movies like Art of War. He is U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals. He can be very cold but just so slick as well. Mm -hmm. And he brings that to Blade. And to be very honest with you, if it wasn't for Wesley Snipes and those Blade movies, those first two Blade movies at the very least, we probably wouldn't have the MCU as it is because that brought superhero films back into uh, prominence where they were more 
serious. That's when after that you had the X-Men films, you had Spider-Man, you had those films where they kind of went a more, a la- the, the much less campier route, not necessarily as grimy and gritty as Blade, yeah. but definitely took themselves more serious. Yeah, now I'm going to show how old I am, because like when I think of significant things, I'm going way back in history. Like prior to, well, even at the time, I mean, for the most part, uh, black actors and actresses, they were relegated to these servant roles yeah you know like they were usually a maid they were usually a butler they were usually something that was less than the first supporting role so i you know what comes to mind of course is bill bojangles robinson in the little colonel uh with shirley temple and they were the first interracial pairing to dance on screen i didn't know that well, no, why would you know that? I no. mean, it's going back from the 1930s, Yeah, that, right? that's legit cinema history, yeah. Yeah, like that. that is absolute history. And then from there, we see Hattie McDaniels be the first person of color, the first black actress to win an Oscar for a supporting role as, of all things, Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but... again, playing a maid, playing a servant, right? But... But that is where tides kind of turn. Because think about it, the fact that it's 1940 and they, I think, I don't think television was, television was around, but I don't know how much of it was being broadcast. But I mean, to sit there and see this this person being treated as a peer yeah, and getting this, what would eventually become very iconic and the highest level of, of awards that you can get in that profession. I mean, at the time, it, it really wasn't. I mean, it was like, what, the first Oscars or something like that? It wasn't, wasn't, uh, the Oscars hadn't been around very long. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I don't think they've been, the Oscars started in the 20s, I think. No, I don't, no? I don't know that. I don't know. Ren, do we know when the Oscars actually started? 1929. 1929. So, yeah, you're right. So, this is like 10 years later, 11 years later, and Hattie McDaniels is the first black person to be nominated. And to win an Oscar. So they had, they've been around a little while now. So the prestige is there. Yep. But it would be like something like 60 some odd years before another black actress would even yeah. have that honor. And that was Halle Berry winning Best Actress uh, for Monsters Ball. Yes. And what was great about that was Sidney Poitier was in the audience. Oh, that's cool. And it was actually. Denzel Washington, I believe, won Best Actor for Training Day that same night. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Denzel Washington, he won Best Supporting for Glory prior to that. That's right. right. But this is still a huge gap in between a lot well, of these wins. Well, there is. When you look at Hattie McDaniel's win in 1940, and then we don't get uh, another win for a person of color until Sidney Poitier for Lilies of the Valley. Yeah. And what surprises me is that his most culturally significant role comes in with the heat of the night along with Rod Steiger. Now, Rod Steiger is nominated for an Oscar Mm -hmm. and wins, deservedly so. No shade about that. That is a fine performance. But Sidney Poitier, the other half of that, the, the, the whole reason for the movie, the whole story, who gives just as powerhouse of a performance, is not nominated. And that... That shocks me as well, because like since we talked about Sidney Poitier on the last show that we talked about him on, I have gone and watched In the Heat of the Night, and 
first and foremost, that that line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. The 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 inflection inflection that he puts on that and the look in his face is just something else it is but he is of, brilliant yeah it is one of the most significant lines ever because it's this really heated moment between gillespie and tibbs right and gillespie's like oh yeah yeah you think you're all this what do they call you up there they call me mr tibbs yeah and significantly too is there's this this part that comes later and i don't want to i don't want to um I don't want to do a spoiler alert if people haven't seen it, you know, because, I mean, this movie is decades old. But they go to this rich man's southern mansion, mm -hmm. Endicott, and they're talking about the, the flowers and everything, because it's a clue. It's a clue to this murder that they're investigating. And Endicott is just what you would expect. He's an uppity white guy that is just putting down this black man. And there's this nice juxtaposition where it's a very small role where, again, his butler, played by the late, great Jester Raleigh, is a servant. And, of course, Sidney Poitier is from the North, and he is a detective, and he is... Uh, not subservient to anyone, and he says something, and Endicott gets pissed off, and Endicott slaps Sidney Poitier, and Sidney Poitier's character, Mr. Tibbs, backhands him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Gillespie does not know what to do with it, <laughs> and Jester Raleigh doesn't, character doesn't know what to do with it, and Endicott is just in so much shock. This is one of my all-time favorite movies, and it is so significant in black cinema because it gets to the meat of the racism of the time. Well, I, I have to wonder how many times in cinema at that point did we see a black man throw down and throw hands with a white man? I don't know. Like that's I that, don't know. that's an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, like, and part of me has to wonder if, if that scene was at least partially ad lib because all oh, no, of the, all, no. all of the reactions seem so genuine. Yeah. I, I don't think it was ad lib. That would definitely be in the script because this is, this is just significant. I, this is to me, one of the few perfect movies. Yeah. It is, it is made beautifully. It is shot beautifully. It is acted stupid. Stupendously, even on the the small supporting roles. Little side note: Scott Wilson from The Walking Dead, the Scott Wilson played Herschel, is in this movie. It's one of his first movies. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. he is great in it. I didn't recognize him. Well, why would <laughs> well, you? Well, yeah, because like he's his, a young man. He's in his like twenties or whatever, right? That's cool. So yeah, I mean these these are the kind of things that we're talking about. These are the sort of moments that we don't give a lot of thought to now because. Like, I, when you think about it, I was born, honestly, just five years after segregation ended. Just yeah. like when, when kids were being integrated into the schools. Like, uh, that, that blows my mind when I think about that. The, the timeline, the timeline of all of this, when yeah. you sit down and look at it, 
really kind of messes with your perception of history and reality sometimes. Yeah, and it's it's funny too because people will often make comments like, "Why do you need things like the Black Entertainment Network? Why do you need uh, this or that or the other thing?" Because their stories deserve to be told. They need to be told, and they when you watch a lot of these films, they are so rich and the acting is beautiful. Like The Color Purple is yeah. a beautiful movie. Again, one of my favorites. Not a sour note in that movie. And it gave us rise to Oprah Winfrey. It gave us Whoopi Goldberg. Both nominated. Both didn't win. Both deserved to. So I do want to talk about Oprah Winfrey and her significance a little later. Before we can do that, though, I think that we need to talk about the history of black actresses in television. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And a good place to start there would be Uhura, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, absolutely. Great place to start. So Star Trek, just overall, Star Trek is one of my favorite things. And one of the things that I do love about the original series is how overall inclusive it was. You had you had people of different walks of life on there. You had a uh, a Russian officer. You had a uh, an Asian pilot. You had, of course, Nichelle Nichols who was a black woman in a position, she was a lieutenant, she was an officer, and she was their communications expert. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that character is how intelligent that character was. Because not only was she a lieutenant, not only did she have uh, a position on the bridge with these uh, men, mm -hmm. like, when you think about where does she fall in that chain of command? Well, certainly above any other woman yeah, on that was, ship. She was bridge crew. Yeah. Uh, but she, the character spoke several languages. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the thing is that she. Alien languages. Yeah, exactly. She was highly intelligent. She knew how to handle the men on the bridge and she didn't take crap from anybody. It was fantastic. Now, one of the things that I love about Nichelle Nichols story with Star Trek is she actually was going to leave the show. Right. She had intended on leaving the show. And what happened was she met uh, at some kind of dinner, Martin Luther King Jr. Right. And he expressed upon her the importance of her being in this role. And because of what he said to her and that he impressed, it wasn't just the fact that she was black, it's the fact that she was a woman in this role, she was important to so many young black women and young women in general. She had to be on that. Yeah, show. they could see a place for themselves. And it's so rich in this history, too, because this is the first interracial kiss ever shown anywhere on, on the small screen, at least. Yeah. I, I think possibly in movies, even. Yeah, the, the, the kiss between Kirk and Uhura is one iconic, two hugely controversial at the time the, the the studio did not want to do it and gene roddenberry said yeah we're doing it yeah and, <laughs> and it's interesting but it's interesting that the way they did it because gene roddenberry was really quite smart uh about this sort of thing because it's forced you know like yeah. some an outside force is forcing them together right yeah so one you that's how he got away with it. Yep. Like, I know people sit there and, and they might criticize it for that sort of thing. It's like, well, why couldn't they just have done it? Well, you know. Because it was the 60s. For, for the same reason why Betty White, you know, lost her show, you know, because people's attitudes were not 
there. But if it's if it's a forced thing, then you're showing it and gasp. Yeah. Right. And it still puts the image in the forefront, which is the important part. Yeah. And, you know, like it's just as as it goes on and as we we watch this this whole process of Yuhura evolving even into the movies. Yes. What was really smart is the fact that Nichelle Nichols' contract was contracted as sort of a guest role, mm -hmm. which meant she got more money. Yeah. She got more money than if she had just been uh, right there as, as a regular person. Now, I had the opportunity to meet Nichelle Nichols at one of the Comic-Cons. What a lovely lady she was. Just, uh, she was, I, listen, I, can I quickly tell the story? She was supposed to be at the Niagara Falls Comic-Con. She took ill and couldn't be there. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to go to the Niagara Falls Comic-Con. So she was then rescheduled for the Hamilton Comic-Con. I didn't think I could go. I moved heaven and earth to get there on the, the, the day of the con. And I couldn't find the place, so I called my friend John Miori and I said, John, where is this place? And he told me how to get there from where it was. Because Hamilton, folks, it's a tough town to drive in, even if you live there. The, the streets are bizarre. I go in there and I'm panting because I'm just racing because it's getting late in the day. You know what I mean? And I take a breath and I sit down with Michelle Nichols and she does the Spock thing and we do all the, the thing. And I said, oh, I said, I, she, 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 said, uh, she said, calm down, calm down. And I'm like, okay. I said, I, I'm sorry, I'm out of breath. I said, and I told her the story. I said, I have done everything I can to get here to see you. And she was so touched by that. And she had me sit down with her and, and we talked for a while and we talked all about the, the cultural significance. And, and just, I said, you, I, I said, I just adore you. And I adore the character of Yuhura. Because, um, like, my favorite character, believe it or not, it's not Kirk. It's not Spock. You know, everybody loves them. I love Scotty. I love Yahura. I love yep. Chekhov. I love Sulu. Because they are, to me, they are the more relevant thing in all of that, right? They're, to me, they're the more relatable characters in the show. Yeah. Because, Kirk, yeah, Kirk's the leader. He's the boss. Spock is an alien. Yeah. And, you know, like, Yahura said, Yahura... <laughs> Nichelle Nichols said the, the, the most southern, beautiful thing that you could ever say when she when she found out that I had to move heaven and earth just to come and see her. Because that was the only reason I went to the Hamilton Comic Con, just to see her. And she just, it's such a southern thing. Ren can relate to this being uh, from the, the United States. She takes my hand, she goes, bless your heart. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, but, like, that's the thing, though. And I, I, I find it funny that you call her a hurrah there. Instead of the show. But she's so synonymous with that character that it's really one or the other. Yeah, and there is a, uh, a special or a commercial that you can find probably on YouTube or somewhere. And I, I encourage all of our aliens to find it, where it is Nichelle Nichols saying, you know, I played Lieutenant Uhura in her Uhura costume at the Smithsonian talking about all of these wonderful things that these girls and particularly black girls could achieve. And there's a little black girl in this special or commercial or whatever it is. And I encourage you to find it because it's, it is beautiful and touching and amazing because yeah, it's, it's just very powerful. Yeah. And like even um, future actresses, actors and actresses like Whoopi Goldberg, the only reason she did Star Trek was because she loved Uhura. And she was ticked 
when Uhura was not in Star Trek Generations. <laughs> she was so angry. Yeah, I, I bet she was. In 1968, we have a sitcom called Julia, starring Diane Carroll. Now, this is the first time that a black actress has starred in a sitcom or a one-hour drama as the lead character. Julia's a single mom, and she's also a nurse, which is, as you pointed out, a huge step forward from just basically being servants. Yeah, yeah, that is that is kind of interesting because you see from that point forward where you get more um, black characters who are in a more professional role. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 interesting, too, because she wins the Golden Globe for this. So there's a lot to celebrate about Julia and about Diane Carroll being a pioneer in moving this uh, black culture forward in pop culture. But it wasn't without its controversy. And Ren found some really great quotes on that. So according to the Saturday Reviews, Robert Louis Shayton, he mentioned that Quote, it was a far, far cry from the bitter realities of Negro life in the urban ghetto, the pit of America's explosion potential, end quote. Hmm. And what did Diane Carroll respond? Like, did she respond to that or how did she react to that? Uh, in 1968, she remarked that, quote, at the moment we're presenting the white Negro and he has very little Negroness, end quote. And that's really hard for us because we don't have that experience. No. You know, and growing up with that, the Julia was before my time. I wasn't even born. Um, and I've never seen it in reruns. It, it probably was in the 70s when I was too young to understand it or even want to watch it because I wanted to watch something like Flipper or Gilligan's Island or whatever. Um, but we wouldn't see that narrative get flipped until the Huxtables in the 1980s where they were uh, a doctor and a lawyer. But... Norman Lear, of course, did get to the meat of that experience with the sitcom Good Times. Yeah, it's true. You know, where they are in a project. And Good Times, I, I got to go through this history. Good Times is a spinoff of a spinoff of All in the Family. And All in the Family, as we have discussed, I mean, there's nothing like Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker being bigoted as hell. And yet Sammy Davis Jr. shows up as Sammy Davis Jr. on this. And it's one of the most iconic moments from All in the Family. Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, is going to have a picture with, with Archie Bunker. And Sammy Davis Jr. plants a kiss on his cheek. And the look on Archie Bunker's face when that happens. And the audience goes crazy. Yeah. So the reason I say it's a spinoff of a spinoff is um, Edith's cousin Maude comes in and gives all these kind of of um, shenanigans and she does she does not take any guff from Archie. He's Republican, she's Democrat. End of story. Maude becomes a spinoff. This is where we're first introduced to the character of Florida, played by Esther Roll. She and her husband moved to I think it I think it's the Chicago projects. I think they, they moved to Chicago for some reason, uh, from New York. And and John Amos and Esther Roll are the patriarchs of the Evans family. And this is where we get J.J. Walker, iconic character in the 70s, <laughs> playing their son. And he's like that, that line, Dynamite! Dynamite! <laughs> and uh, playing, uh, playing Junior, basically. Yeah. And this shows really, I think, a, a slice of life that a lot of other people were not privy to. 
you know, and, and and it is showing this black experience and it's showing this very wonderful, loving family that is struggling day to day just to put food on the table, just to keep a roof over their head. So you juxtaposition that with the other spinoff from All in the Family, the Jeffersons. Oh, yeah. Because the Jeffersons started as the Bunker's neighbors. And then uh, George Jefferson was running a dry cleaning store or two, maybe. And he makes it into this empire. And boy, like I, I didn't understand the significance of the theme song. Yes, I didn't either until... You know, yeah. like there's just about the moving on up. Yep. You know, because that was really unheard of and when you think about the culture at the time yes the 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 black community was on the the move they yes. were they were getting their piece of the pie if if you want if you for for lack of a better term yeah well basically that's that's the theme song right yeah and but it showed all of the controversial things in there because they also had an interracial couple yes that is true i i love her, um sherman helmsley i always did <laughs> Uh, I never saw All in the Family when I was a kid. I didn't know Maude existed in, until recently. But um, the Jeffersons, I had seen as a kid. Yeah. Jeffersons were, were was on in reruns, and I had watched that. And I thought Sherman Helmsley was absolutely brilliant because he was very brash. It wasn't the fact that he was a strong black man. It was the fact that he was this very strong diminutive man. Because he's, he's not a big guy. But man, when he talks to people, he is big. And one, of, just as a side note, one of my favorite things that he did was the boss in Dinosaurs. Yeah. That was hilarious. But you know what's interesting, too, is that of that character of George Jefferson, like we always criticize Archie Bunker, but Norman Lear was smart in this. He made George Jefferson pretty much just as racist as Archie Bunker kind of was. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. because like he, he would always refer to the interracial couple as being zebras. You know? And it was, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. I got I'm no shade there, you know. And and that those couples had to come together because Lionel and uh Jenny, uh Jenny was the uh, daughter of, of the interracial couple that lived in the high rise apartment penthouse next to them or whatever. And they they were dating, and they eventually get married, and the whole bit. Uh, but it was just so wonderful to watch the dynamic because when it first started, George's mother was living with them as well, right? And George's mother and Wheezy did not get along. And there was a episode where somebody was uh, I, I, my memory's a bit foggy, but so, someone was basically putting the moves on Wheezy, if you will, mm. and. In comes George's mother, and she just lays into this dude, and she is, and that was a, a really interesting dynamic there to see that uh, coming together of the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law, you know, and of course they had their they had their maid played by Marla Gibbs who got her own sitcom two two seven. And how many sitcoms or how many spin-offs? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not a spinoff. Oh, okay. 227 is completely right. separate. I'm just saying Marla Gibbs got her own <laughs> okay. show. Oh, no. You know what, though? The maid did get a brief spinoff. She did. They, like All of the family had a lot of spinoffs, dude. Like Jeez. A lot. And, you know, even right. The, I think the last one was uh, Gloria. They, they did one based on uh, some of these didn't last long. But, yeah. you know, but and Archie Bunker's place was the last one that had Archie Bunker in it. 
But anyway, we're, we're, we're off topic with that. So, I mean, it's just all of these rich things that, that we were able to experience. But I want to go back and look at it through a different lens now. Yeah. Because I was a child. I didn't understand any of this. And again, I, I liked Sherman Helmsley because he was very brash and very out yeah. there. I would like to go back and watch that performance as an adult. And yeah, and all the subtleties in the writing and all yeah. the subtleties of the thing. And and make and what a great way to diffuse things by making you laugh at it. Yeah. Or with well, it. With that, it. That's always been one of uh, Mel Brooks's thing. Yeah. Is to diffuse the situation by making it a joke. Yeah. Uh but Helmsley himself became a huge pop culture icon in the 90s. Like he was when I was a kid in the 90s, he was everywhere. He had so many different guest roles. He was on advertisements. He was in, in rap videos, just dancing yeah. away in the background. Sherman he was everywhere. Yeah, Sherman Helmsley became, I mean, first of all, he's George Jefferson, right? Yeah. But, but then he moves into just basically being Sherman Helmsley. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and that's so great. And he was a guest star in one of my favorite sitcoms, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which really built upon what had come before, where you have this successful uh, strong black man in yeah. Uncle Phil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and let's just go through that quickly again. So Julie, uh, so Yahura is in the future. Yeah, and she is a bright, intelligent peer. Yeah, you know, she's got a position of power. She's got a position of authority. Julia, a nurse. Mm -hmm. All right. George Jefferson, a successful businessman. Yeah. The Huxtables, doctors, lawyer. All of that leading to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Where you have Uncle Phil, who starts off as a lawyer, a very well, high-paid lawyer, who moves into being a state judge. Like, it, it, it's an amazing journey that you go on with these characters. But watching Uncle Phil grow as a judge as well, and having to go up against his uh, his mentor, who is played by Sherman Helmsley, yeah. is really, really cool. But also, just the significance of where you sit there and you have Will Smith's character... Coming from West Philadelphia and basically having nothing and possibly getting into trouble uh, in ways that just shocks his mother. And she says, I'm not having this for my son. I want better for him. You're moving with your uncle and auntie in Bel Air. Indeed. And, and now we see that that has been turned into a drama. Yeah, which was really cool. I liked it. Um, it was it was really neat what they did with it, especially with Uncle Phil, because first and foremost, James Avery is Uncle Phil. I there are certain moments in that show where it's like this guy deserved all the Golden Globes. <laughs> but there was something in this new version of Uncle Phil and Jeffrey the Butler. Yeah. Where they were very conniving and very underhanded in their approach of how they deal with things. Yes, uh, leading to the phrase you got uncle Phil. <laughs> yeah, it it was that, it was an intense show but man it was good. That moment when he goes in and he pool hustles them. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. It's and the Carlton dance and Aunt Viv just not having any of it when she goes to that dance audition and yep. those girls are like you're old and she's like oh yeah and she does the thing and she just she just blows them away with her dance routine the audience goes wild out she goes and collapses outside the door because damn it i am not a young woman anymore but the really neat thing about that show is it shows the generational divide like one of the things in the first episode is 
Will has made an ass of himself. He has shown up. He's got his his uh, his suit coat on, but he's wearing like a tube top underneath it, a tie dye tube top, <laughs> and he's just completely embarrassed his uncle. Afterwards, um, he uh, Uncle Phil has words with him, he's, and they're talking about how they need to present themselves and blah 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 blah. And he says, "You have Malcolm X's poster in your room." I heard the brother talk. And mm, you, yeah. you see Will, Will sit there and go, you heard him talk? And that's where the respect yeah. starts between the two characters because the, the it has to be there, but there has to be the basis for it. And that's where you get a great part of the story between Uncle Phil and, and Will is he has Uncle Phil went through all of it. Yeah. He went through all of it in the 60s and 70s. And Will has... Will has his experiences that he needs to go through and does go through in the show, but he needed that basis for, from, from Uncle Phil. Right. Uh, I'm saving a couple icons just for the end to talk about, but right now I want to talk about an icon that, to me, I don't know where he came from. He just popped up in a B-52s video and <laughs> was just there from then on. And I'm talking about... The Queen of Drag, RuPaul. And the neat thing about RuPaul is that RuPaul very, very quickly just became this pop culture icon. Yeah. The, the iconography of RuPaul just was boom For right there. basically being a drag queen. Yeah. You know? And, it, it, and he had, like, talk shows, too, before that. But, I mean, all of a sudden... it. And the funny thing about it is it's almost the same as Elvira, in a way. Because they're both drag characters. Yeah, 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 extent, I can see that, yeah. right? But RuPaul, all of a sudden, he was just there. Yeah. And everybody knew him. And I don't know how that happened. Because it was it was just like, like all of a sudden, it's like, hi, I'm RuPaul. And, you know, and you sit there and you go, because, you know, you're not familiar with drag queens at that time as much. Because I was a very different culture. It wasn't really around here at all. And I sit there and I go, wait a minute, that's 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 not a woman. This is this is really my first introduction into drag queens, if you will, as just drag queens, not something like uh, British pantomime where yeah. there's a man playing a female part in drag or whatever. And I'm sitting there going, huh? I wonder what he looks like out of drag. And it would take us a long time before we found that yes. out. But he. This is why RuPaul is the queen of drag, because nobody cuts a stunning female figure like RuPaul in drag. That's true. Like, he, he was just gorgeous to look at with this, this female presenting image. And the, the, the way that he has elevated drag, the way that he has elevated not just drag, but drag within the black community. Yeah is just astounding in what is relatively a very short period of time because he came out sort of... Uh, came out. I don't mean it like that. He was always out. But he, RuPaul shows up in the late 80s, early 90s, and nobody questioned it. Nobody. They just went, great. Fantastic. Then he's in the Brady Bunch movies as, right. <laughs> as Jan's teacher. But, and that, that's, oh my God, right. <laughs> I love that. With, I love that that spin that they put on it where the two daughters are there and he's just like, Moesha gets everything. Moesha, Moesha, Moesha. Yes. So that's that's the thing, right? Like like 
like Helmsley, Ru- RuPaul was just RuPaul, an overall icon within within the entertainment industry. Yeah. The only other people that I can think of that kind of just popped up like that, and I know it kind of predates me, but I understand the story behind it, but Mr. T just kind of popped up on the A-team and then just became Mr. T. Yeah. I didn't even know. Well, Mr. no, I think Mr. T was in that Rocky movie before the Right, A-team. yeah, he was in Rocky, yeah. yes. He was in Rocky. Yeah, but Mr. T was a huge cultural icon exactly. in the 80s. Exactly. Uh, the fool. <laughs> the jewelry man. But... Um, we all love Mr. T. Yeah. Like, Mr. T was everywhere for the longest time. I didn't even know his character's name in the A-Team for the longest time. I thought he was just Mr. T. I didn't know he was B.A. <laughs> Baracus. But, but, but there again, one of those people where, yes, he's playing B.A. Baracus. Yes, that's a character. But it very it's much... Mr. T. It's very much Mr. T. And Mr. T... Was just Mr. T. And he, had his, he had his own Saturday morning cartoon as Mr. T. And dude, he was so huge, he got into WrestleMania fighting Roddy Roddy Piper in yeah. a boxing match. He had action figures. Yeah. As Mr. T. Not not I mean he had BA Baracus ones as well, but he had Mr. T action figures. Like he was just everywhere. And that was a guy that started working as a bouncer and so, just got in with friends. I just gotta make this point because I'm all about the dad jokes. So we went from RuPaul to Mr. T. So we went from spilling the tea to being the tea. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) I hate you so much. No, you don't hate me because that that is fantastic. So I've saved three icons for the last. Nick, tell us about this one. Oh, we love this actor. We love him so much. Samuel L. Jackson. Sammy. love Sam Jackson. I love Sammy Jackson. Okay, so where to begin with Sam Jackson? Well, my first... Like, I saw Sam Jackson in several movies before I was really conscious of him. Right. But the first movie, of course, that pops to mind when I think of Sam Jackson is Pulp Fiction. Yes. As Jules. Yes. Just that is a tasty burger. That is a tasty (laughs) burger. I love that entire scene. But he makes that character work so well. And I think part of it is... And a staple, really, in in Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um... He, and he, he's, he's also had a lot of different looks in different movies. Like, if you look at him in Unbreakable versus him in Pulp Fiction versus him in Black Snake Moan, he is virtually, like, you know it's it's Sam Jackson. Yeah. But he can pull off all these different looks like a total chameleon. Well, yeah, but when you see also the differences in his characters from something like Snakes on a Plane to... Um, Django Unchained with uh, Quentin Tarantino, where he's playing that really crusty, or was no, maybe it was the Hateful Eight. Um, he was he was in both. He yeah, was well, both. of course he was. No, um, it, it was Django Unchained, where he's yeah. just like that that crusty butler character that just is not having any of it. You know, he was also the villain in the Kingsman too. Yes, yes, he was. yes oh, he with, was. The, with the big the Mac. I need, I need a Big Mac. It's a tasty burger. <laughs> and he's he's done a ton of voice work as well. He was in The Incredibles as uh, as Frozone. He was in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. One of my all time. St- let's stop for a minute. How many movies? I mean, you can make a whole movie, and Sam Jackson's in it. Like, how many movies has he done? Over two hundred acting credits. That is a that is significant. One of my favorite voicing roles he did. There's a cartoon called The Boondock. Oh, yeah. And he plays a white man. <laughs> it killed me. It killed Afro me. Afro Samurai. And, of course, yeah, Afro Samurai. Of course, he was in Star Wars as well as Mace, Mace Windu. Windu. The, With the purple lightsaber. I what, love It's my favorite color. One of my favorite things, he had BMF 
in, inscribed on the uh, lightsaber, which oh, was yeah. also inscribed on his wallet in Pulp Fiction. But, you know, like, the, part of the reason we're bringing up Samuel L. Jackson is because, like, when we've talked about a lot of these other people, we have seen where they have changed the thinking. We've seen where they've changed the culture. But a lot of people may not organically think of this. S- things were changed because of Samuel L. Jackson. That's true. Nick, tell us about that. In the Ultimate Marvel comic books, you had Nick Fury, obviously. Yes, and let me just point out that Nick Fury and the Punisher looked exactly the freaking same. Yeah, in the in the original uh, comic books, they did, but in the Ultimate Marvel comic books, they made they made Nick Fury black, and not just black; they made him look exactly like Samuel Jackson. Now, Mark Millar, who was one of the the creatives behind the Ultimate series. He loves Sam Jackson. Right. So and why so, not use him as inspiration? Exactly. And when Sam Jackson found out about that and contacted him, contacted him and Marvel said, okay, we'll, we'll use you as Nick Fury in the future movies. Um, <laughs> See, and, that's what I love because I love the fact that Samuel L. Jackson has all of these movie credits because he's basically a big old pop culture nerd. Yeah, I know. And the, the, the really neat thing, though, is it didn't just change Nick Fury to a black man in the movies. In the main universe... They now have, I mean, he's Nick Fury Jr., but they don't call him that. But he is, in fact, a black man in the main series now. It's really neat. Going back to Wesley Snipes, you've got Sam Jackson. These two men have really helped mold the MCU as it stands now. And that is really neat. Yeah, and, you know, it's just, it's so wonderful to have these really great performances. Because I love Samuel L. Jackson's attitude, where he's, some of the movies he's been in, actually would not have been as good without him in them. Yes, there are movies that I've watched him in. that have, I'm, And like any other actor, he will clearly do movies for a paycheck. But some of those movies I have watched would be nigh unwatchable without his presence. Snakes on a plane. Kite. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like these are, he, he elevates these movies. Now, we can't talk about Samuel L. Jackson and being in all those Quentin Tarantino movies without talking about the goddess that is Pam Greer. Right. Pam Greer and all of those historically significant black exploitation movies, coffee. Oh my goodness. Everything that Quentin Tarantino is, everything that he has done is because of movies like Coffee and his love of Pam Greer. And that's a hundred percent correct. And look at look at what Tar- what's happened. People are now taking cues from Tarantino's films. Yeah. They, they, they're inspired by him. So it's amazing what builds upon what in the pantheon of a film. Yeah. And we, so, I mean, we have coffee. Coffee's the biggest one. I mean, there yes. was, there was a whole bunch of them. I mean, uh, but coffee is like one of her biggest ones. That's one that she's really, really known for. And she has just transcended. And then Tarantino makes Jackie Brown. Yes. He basically recreates that black exploitation. He worships at the altar of Pam Greer and gives her this this movie that is just so wonderful to watch, you know, and the influences that Pam Greer has had in this. Is that like Foxy Brown in the Austin Power movie? Yeah, in Goldmember. I mean, Beyonce's character, uh, Foxy Brown, is completely based on those Pam Greer roles. Yeah. And you see a lot of that in, like, I've seen that type of character show up in video games, show up in in cartoons, show up in comic books. 
Like the the presence and the influence is just there and is a significant part of cinematic history. Yeah, you know, and it's it's so hard because there is so much to this and we've only really scratched the surface, you know, and we we haven't been able to dive into a lot of these uh, characters and these icons very deeply. But the last one that we must talk about is Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Oprah Winfrey, because of Barbara Walters, because of Mary Tyler Moore, she wanted to become a journalist. And she did so with aplomb. But when she learned about the color purple and about being able to audition for that role, and she was determined she was going to get it, Mm -hmm. and she got it. Yes, she did. And then she was determined that she was going to be nominated for an Oscar for, and she got it. The determination and the grit that Oprah Winfrey has shown from elevating herself to humble circumstances, which we all pretty much go through, into the powerhouse that she is and the good that she has done. Now, she has the significance of being, uh, just got to check my notes here, isn't she the first woman of color to actually host a daytime talk show? As far as I can tell, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is really significant. And what's what's amazing about that is not only did she host a talk show, because like she was playing in the basically the dirt where all the other talk shows were. And there was things that happened, and she came out and she said, we are not doing this anymore. We are going to be about positivity. We're going to be about light. And that's when she really took off. Well, and that's the thing. Like, like Star Wars, like Star Trek, I don't know a world without Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. She has always been, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, into my early 20s before she got her own network. Mm-hmm. She has her own network. Like, yeah. Th- there it is. But she was always in my living room at 4 p.m. Yes, but, every but single think about, day. Think about this, though. Prior to Oprah Winfrey doing the Oprah Winfrey show, you had Phil Donahue, you had Maury Povich, you had Jerry Springer, you had Mike Douglas, not the same as Michael Douglas. You had... Um, Oh, I oh I just it was men. It was yeah. all men. Oprah Winfrey comes on, makes it look easy. It wasn't, I'm sure. Makes it look easy with her Harpo Studios, based the name based from the color purple. <laughs> and all of a sudden, now you have Jenny Jones. Now you have uh, Rosie O'Donnell. Now you have uh, Ellen DeGeneres and Ricky Ellen. Lakes, yeah, Sally Jesse Raphael. All that. And Ellen DeGeneres was the only. I think maybe the first, but maybe uh, maybe the only, I'm not sure. But she was definitely the first person to share the cover of Oprah Ma- Magazine with Oprah Winfrey. I believe so, yes. <laughs> there you go. Oprah had her own magazine. So, like, so ma- Oprah has had this massive influence on everybody. Like, I, I It's hard-pressed to, to, to figure out where she hasn't had an influence. Honestly, I, I can't think, think of anything. Because, yeah, she is, she is legit pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, and not only that, but she takes this money and she does good with it. Building schools, getting girls opportunities in uh, impoverished places in Africa, like countries in Africa that don't have these. Like, she does a lot of good with it. And, you know, yes, sometimes there's controversy like, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. It's like, well, we can't afford the car you gave us. And, you know, that's a really neat. uh, The thing that kills me about that 
is Tyra Banks kind of aped that thing. Yeah. But Tyra Banks' show couldn't afford cars. So she would be like, you get Vaseline and you get Vaseline. <laughs> and people would get one of these little sparkly Vaseline bottles. I'm like, oh, man. But, you know, like the thing of it is, is like her show was enjoyable. And as you said, it was comfort. You could come home. I'd come home from work. And it's like, because uh, I was working at three o'clock. And it's like, what are you going to watch for an hour? There's Oprah Winfrey. And she would have everybody and anybody on there. Well, and that's the thing for me, right? Like I was a teenager coming home. I don't want to watch Oprah. But secretly, my mom's got Oprah on TV. I'm just going to sit there and watch it. Because honestly, she was incredibly positive. Yeah. She never really, she didn't drag anyone through the mud. She wasn't cruel to anybody. And I, I and I like the change, too, because I said she started off with basically playing in the mud. Because that's where daytime talk show was. Yes. The more salacious it could well, be. I do, because Ma- I do remember those I days. I mean, Maury basically went from being a talk show and having different things to it's like, you're not the father. Yeah. Um, and that's all he was. And, you know, Jerry Springer, like, trash television, tell me this. But, I mean, Oprah sat there, and it was so funny because as you see those earlier Oprah Winfrey shows, where it's like, yes, today we're talking about club kids. And then she's like, no, I'm not having this. This is not what I want to be. This is not what I want to do. And then we get this wonderful, laid-back Oprah Winfrey with her best friend, Gail King. And just <laughs> like, yeah! You know, and yes, I know people have sort of made fun of her for being that exuberant, but but when I think about when she decided to end the show, just the outpouring, I've never seen that before. Like people's like, this is our final episode. We're having a final episode. People are coming on the episode to say thank you, thank you, Phil Donahue, thank you for all these things, wonder, whatever. But hers was an extravaganza event. Yeah. And she's she's always been a fixture in a lot of households. Yeah, you know, and and a, a, a wonderful fixture in in the household. And you know, I I love the fact too that she will she just she's real. You know, like she's she's been real. She continues to be real. She, she owned her own network. I think that's a first. Yeah, she has her own network, the O Network. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she still has it. Yeah, I mean yeah. that that's first. And she was. Wasn't she at one time, like, the wealthiest? At one point, yes. Like, not the wealthiest woman, because that was Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. But In North America, I believe. Yeah, she was She was up there. She was... But it's it's interesting, just going back to the, the talk show host that you spoke of earlier, a lot of them started off just as talk show hosts, and then they delved into trash TV. But, and, you know, they're still on TV. They're still making a living. But Oprah did what she did, and she didn't just make a living. She thrived on it. She became one of the most important women in network television. Yeah. And you know what? Like all of these icons that we've talked about are, I mean, like I said, we've just scratched the surface. Just give yourselves a chance. Support support black stories. They're, they're important to tell. They're important for us to understand their, their perspective, where they're coming from, to continue to fight against racism. Because... We, we're coming up on a cultural first again. We're breaking yet another barrier, and I'm here for it. I don't know why it wasn't done sooner. I guess because light bulbs don't go off. Ren, you want to tell us what that is? We are getting our first person of color doctor on Doctor Who. I am here for it. What took them so long? Oh, well, I mean, it's the BBC. But anyway, <laughs> um, Kurigawa. Uh, who some who some may know from the Netflix series Sex Education will be the new Doctor. I'm excited for that because I think he is great in Sex Education and he's absolutely hilarious. I think he'll do a good job. 
And it's a lot of the actors that portray the doctor do kind of go on to become kind of icons in their own right. Yeah. And for the longest time, they were old white dudes. Yes. Yeah, that is that is very true. I mean, it made sense at the time because like, they were looking for a certain amount of sophistication, authority, you know, like a college professor or whatever. So, I mean, that start didn't start getting down to younger white dudes until Tom Baker. Yeah. And then, you know, Peter, I think it was Peter Davison or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, but this is this new series, which has gone on as long as the old series. At this point, yeah. Is... It's. I love the groundbreaking stuff that they're doing. I love the fact that we had our first female doctor, and now we have our first person of color doctor. And I, I, I can't wait to see that. And I'm sure when he regenerates, he's going to look in the mirror and go, eh, still not a ginger. And on that note, that is all the time that we have for this episode of Area 51 and a Half. Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. Uh, they can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, and TikTok at the Area 51H. Of course, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Area 51 and a Half. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash the Area 51H, as well as our Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash the Area 51H. Thank you for joining us on our landing pad. For Ren and Nick, this is John Allen signing off from Area 51 and a Half.